Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. One of my very first times I gave evidence was at the Old Bailey, and it was a tragic case. There was a really young 18-year-old girl. She'd never been a delinquent. She'd never got into trouble, never took alcohol or drugs, really studious. She became completely psychotic out of the blue and suffocated and killed her two-year-old uh, nephew while she was babysitting him. Today on the show is the wonderful Dr. Shaham Das, a brilliant forensic psychiatrist whose job involves dealing with mentally ill and dangerous criminals. As well as a leading figure in British psychiatry, Dr. Das is becoming something of an online star. His YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds, fast attracting subscribers, so do check that out. He creates very professional videos in which he discusses all sorts of psychiatric disorders and he expands upon true crime stories so you can get to the bottom of why certain unsavory individuals did bad things. We talk today about what a forensic psychiatrist actually is and how it differs from a forensic psychologist such as Kerry Danes, who was on the show just a few weeks ago. We'll go into a few of the good doctor's cases and consider the differences between mental health issues and criminal behaviour and where the two coincide. When I say we, I mean Dr. Das because I don't really know what I'm talking about, but hopefully I ask some of the right questions. Shaham assesses and rehabilitates mentally disordered offenders in prisons, courts and secure psychiatric units such as the infamous Broadmoor Hospital. He's appeared on many TV shows and big podcasts, including this one. And outside of psychiatry, he's even done a few stand-up comedy gigs. He's currently writing a book about his most fascinating cases, due out in 2022. Find him on Twitter, that's in the show notes, with a link to a Psych for Sore Minds YouTube channel. I'm on andrewgold underscore OK on socials, and find our bonus chat on patreon.com slash andrewgold, or by subscribing to the VIP or bonus area on Apple. Next week, it's geneticist Catherine Page Harden on to talk about eugenics and how our genes give us advantages and disadvantages. But now, it's Dr. Shaham Das. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks, mate. How are you doing? Good, thank you. You you look a bit um beefier than than I've than I'd seen you in pictures before. Do you work out? <laughs> yeah, I do. I try and exercise every day if I can. Um, yeah, do a bit of weights, do um, do circuit class and stuff. What about you? Oh no, no, I did. I had um, I worked out for the only time in my whole life for about a month or two, about seven years ago, because I was trying to impress my current girlfriend. Okay, so it worked. Yeah, well, I don't, you know what? I don't think she cares. Although it has now reached a point where there's been a few little comments because there's a bit of a tummy appearing. So I might start doing that. Let's have a look. My, my tummy? Yeah. I can't get it out, can I? <laughs> it's your podcast, man. Yeah, what kind of doctor are you again? <laughs> I, I find um, that if I don't work out for like two or three days in a row, then my energy levels and my mood like really plummet. I kind of, I man. need it. Yeah. That's a lot of people. I think that must be, I'm reading a book, at the, the person the week after you is a woman, uh, Catherine uh, Page Harden, who's written a book about genet- uh, genetics and eugenics from a, it's supposed to be a progressive look at eugenics and how we can make a fairer world from it. And I've been really obsessing a bit about DNA and stuff like that. And I'm now, I don't know if it's a cop out, but now I'm just like, well, some people just have the genes where they enjoy exercising and I don't have it because you clearly enjoy it right well I, I enjoy the after effects I think actually going through it at the time it's kind of a mixture sometimes I'm really motivated and I'm glad I'm there 
sometimes I just it just feels like a slog, but I get through it anyway. But I think more than the actual act of working out, I just like a bit of peace and quiet where nobody's bothering me, nobody's asking questions, and I'm just in my own world. So I'm too I'm too um, impatient and distracted to meditate or anything like that. So I need to be doing something for myself. Yeah, I'm the same uh, with the, the impatience with that kind of thing as well. I got to play. The only exercise I can do is football because at least I'm not thinking about doing the exercise. It's like I'm chasing a ball and I'm, I'm rubbish at it. But at least I'm like you know. By the way, so are you able to record on your side? Uh, yes. Do I? I just press the record button down here, right? That's it. Oh, good to have that. Um, how are you doing? I'm, I'm pretty good, actually. I'm all right. Yeah, I've. Uh, I think I'm at my happiest when I'm busy, and I'm quite busy, but not too busy. So yeah, I'm. I'm good. Yeah. How are you doing? Good, thanks. How do I? How do I? I'm trying to work out with the microphone here because I'm in a new setup. Because I'm moving house, been moving to Bristol. Uh, was living in Berlin. And I'm in my family home, and this is my brother's bedroom because he doesn't live anymore. Um, and I'm putting the microphone like really close because I want it to sound really clear for, because most people listen. But then do I look ridiculous? It's like covering half my face, isn't it? Could you maybe shuffle over to the side a little bit and yeah. angle it? thing is that like, no one watches this on YouTube. Um, very few people do. And loads, they're listening mostly because I don't know. How's your YouTube channel going? it's going all right it's going all right um because i'm always so busy with work and the youtube takes up a lot of my time so i i I release two episodes a week and it probably takes me well over a day probably near a day and a half just to do all the admin and stuff like that i'm sure you can relate to that so i i am constantly asking myself whether it's worth my efforts so i've got about six thousand subscribers which is okay but it's not as high as i want to get so i have to battle my my wanting to make the videos so i do enjoy it versus the amount of time it's taken me versus how busy the rest of my life is so right now it's not tip the balance where i'm happy yet but it's kind of gradually getting there so not perfect yet but you're you're i guess you're thinking when it's you're looking at that six thousand, you see it grow every day there's a few extra and you're just looking like if it gets to sixty thousand, that's another source of really good income right yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm hemorrhaging money because I don't have the time or the uh, technical capability to do stuff like social media or edit my videos. So I pay for all that. So I, I, I would be very surprised if I break even, even, uh, which is fine. I'm not, I'm not in it for the money. I get a decent wage for my other job. Um, but I just want it to, I just want a platform really, because I think I've got a lot of interesting cases to talk about. I think that my other problem, and I, I knew this right from the um, offset, is that I'm quite sort of competitive and impatient. So I, I know I shouldn't do this, but I look at other channels out there. And to be fair, some of them are actually very good, very good. But there's a few that I think are just not that good quality. Yeah. Uh, and it, it frustrates me that they get, you know, tens of thousands of views. And I just don't think the context <laughs> that good. So, yeah. Man, I, I so relate to that feeling. Because obviously we're in totally different fields. But then I see other interviewers of my ilk who, yeah, I think like, how has he got like 100,000 or 200,000 subscribers, loads of people. So what's the answer, do you think? Why Why do some people in your field have that much success, do you think? I think that some people have been going a very long time. Um, God, my chair is so creaky. I need WD-40. Um, it's my brother's chair. Um, yeah, they've been going for years. That's what everyone says, isn't it? They go go for years and years and years. That's And that's you're already getting fed up a little bit. And I get a bit fed up with YouTube. Fortunately, the audio podcast of this has sort of taken off. So I'm not yet at a point where I'm earning a living, but it's a base, uh, which is like, okay, at least this is some way worth the effort. But then putting it on YouTube, as you say, is like, it's really time consuming, the video part and the social media stuff. And it's just like, I'm at 1.6 thousand subscribers now on YouTube after a year. And it's like, I still watch every day and see it go up by a few. And I just think that I might as well just do the audio. But then you never know. What if in 10 years it could be getting hundreds of thousands and really taking off? So you just got to keep at yeah. it, I guess, right? Yeah. And then part, what I hear, I don't know if this actually is the case or not, is that once it kind of flips into taking off and becoming successful, then people will come back and watch old episodes. So it might feel like a lot of your efforts and my efforts are wasted right now, but it's possible that people will retrospectively watch them oh, in the future. They better do it. They better do it. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm just happy that this audio one's going well and I get to talk to people like you and you are a forensic psychiatrist. Um, What does forensic mean? So forensic is about anything to do with crime or offending. It comes from a Latin word, forensis, which I think means something like in the court or in front of the court. People, I think, mistakenly assume that it's about solving crimes. So people think that my role might involve things like criminal profiling or, you know, trying to 
trick murderers into confessions, but it's nothing to do with that at all. It's about rehabilitating people with severe mental illnesses who have already committed a crime. So we already know they're guilty. That's, you know, that's, there's no question about that, but it's about making them safe, rehabilitating them back to the community. Why don't all psychiatrists get into forensic stuff? Because you'd have thought that that's the cool one, isn't it? Like, get to deal with crime. Yeah. Um, so I think that the reason that... So forensics is actually quite small as a subspecialty compared to, like, general adult, drug and alcohol psychiatry, old age psychiatry, etc. Uh, I think there are disadvantages uh, and maybe the things that people dislike are the things that I like about it. So one of them would be that you have quite challenging and potentially aggressive patients. So if you're an inpatient psychiatrist, if you're on a ward, like a medium secure ward, for example, and you you rehabilitate these patients, a lot of them to even be there in the first place have a history of aggression or have like antisocial personality disorder. So you can end up uh, being shouted at really and being threatened. It doesn't happen every single day, but it's certainly not unusual. Uh, Plus, I think it's fair to say that our success rate is actually quite low because our starting point of the cohort we have, we have people with the most severe mental illnesses, the most tragic kind of backgrounds with years of abuse, physical sexual abuse, poverty, because those are the things that give you a mental illness and those are the things that drive people to offending. So the crossroads, which is forensic psychiatry, those are our, our patient group. And there are exceptions, but those are the majority. So the number of people that we rehabilitate is much lower and uh, it's it t- it's done over a much longer period of time. So to give you an example, in a general adult psychiatry ward, patients are in there for maybe uh, about a month typically, maybe three, four months would be seen as the long end of the of the normal spectrum. Whereas in forensics, we keep patients in for roughly two, three years at minimum, and often more than that, sometimes even decades, because they're so dangerous. Because you know, if we discharge yeah. them and they're not ready, then they potentially could go out and commit severe violence. Oh, and that's a lot to deal with. Um, and we'll get on to that. I want to know also, my understanding always of the difference between a, a psychologist and a psychiatrist is the psychiatrist is, is is qualified to hand out drugs and things. Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a few differences. That's definitely one of them. So uh, in terms of like qualifying, so a psychiatrist such as myself is a doctor first. So you have to do all of medical school and then you have to do a minimum um, couple of years on medical and surgical wards. Then you specialize in psychiatry. So we've got a background in all of physical health, where psychologists only train in psychology. And we have certain powers uh, that psychologists don't. So prescribing what you just said is one of them. We can also detain people so I can section people against their will, whereas a psychologist can't do that. You could do that to me then if you like fell out with me, you could just pop around. Could you do that? You'd need a sufficient, sufficient evidence, I suppose. I could I could make evidence if I wanted to. Oh, no, I'm man. just kidding. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, no, there's um, so it is. You need to have two independent doctors who don't work yeah. for the same trust, and a third independent senior social worker. So uh, it's actually very hard. It's probably not. You got no power. Very hard to, yeah, I've got I've got limited power. The other thing I say because I think it's important to give shine some light on my psychologist colleagues is they tend to have more time per patient and they tend to sit down and have like long-term talking therapy so whether it's an hour a week group group um uh, group therapy sessions as well whereas we don't really have the time to do that because we have more patients okay so is there a bit when you meet someone so we had kerry danes who's a forensic psychologist the other day is there sort of a bit of when you meet someone like that there's a bit of a power just sneakily between you and me is there like a bit of like "Mm -hmm, i'm the one with the power i'm the psychiatrist there is a bit of that isn't there well, I I, I uh, really like Kerry Danes. I've not met, I've never uh, contacted her in person, but I think the content she puts out is really good. So, not talking about her specifically, but <laughs> when you're in an inpatient environment, when you're in hospital, it's the psychiatrist that leads the team, and they are ultimately responsible for uh, if anything goes wrong, and they're ultimately just responsible for making decisions like leave and discharge. So, we kind of we uh, delegate out the tasks, and the psychologist, as well as like nurses, occupational therapists, social workers, are one of the team. So I think the power dynamic is is fairly clear cut because it's the psychiatrist name that goes in the section papers, goes in the discharge papers, that goes in the headlines if one of our patients goes on to you know kill somebody. Um, but so yeah, I think it's fairly it's fairly demarcated. Does it is it is that also does it take more studying? Are there more years to be a psychiatrist? 
yeah yeah so you have to uh, qualify as a doctor first and then after that you have to do to become a consultant you have to become a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrists so you have to do a series of exams I think broadly speaking there's more work you have to go through more hoops and uh, you have to get higher levels of qualifications to become a psychiatrist but it's actually more competitive to become a psychologist, especially a forensic psychologist, because the NHS is just so short of uh, psychiatrists that it's relatively easy to walk Mm. into some sort of job, whereas psychology is oversubscribed. So it's harder, it's more competitive to get into a job after you've qualified. I think there's something tempting about becoming a psychologist. I think everyone at some point thinks I could be a therapist because you think, you know, I'm good at listening to people. Then you think, actually, it's boring listening to people. <laughs> Apart from listening to us, of course. A podcaster shouldn't say that. Sorry. No, it's good listening to people. Is it true that two... I was watching one of your videos the other day on your fantastic YouTube channel. Is it true that two out of three... No, two-thirds, sorry, of murders are carried out while drunk? Uh, yeah, I think it's something like that. It might even be higher, actually. Um, it's definitely around that area, 60 or 70%. Wow. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Which, which is not... It's not that surprising because think about it. Alcohol can disinhibit you, right? And so I'm sure we've, or many of us have done things that we regret when we're a bit drunk. You don't really think through the consequences of your actions. So if you're somebody that's already got a beef with somebody, or if you're somebody that's naturally paranoid or aggressive, then it's just going to exacerbate um, your those personality traits. And if you kind of, at the back of your mind, you've maybe thought about hurting somebody and then you get disinhibited, it gives you that kind of d- Dutch courage to go through and do it. Yeah. Oh my God. So so I don't think it's people who drink and then suddenly think they're going to go out and kill somebody. I think it's somebody that's predisposed to it and that's like the final factor that pushes them over. Is intoxication or drugs, are they a legal defence? No, the vast majority of the time they're not. So voluntary intoxication is like a, a legal term and that negates any potential psychiatric diagnosis. The exception is if you have like a drug-induced psychosis. So if you're just intoxicated if you're just wasted and you go and hurt somebody or kill somebody there's no legal defense but if you take drugs and then become psychotic and then you act on those psychotic delusions so if you're if you're genuinely paranoid and you believe that somebody else is going to attack you or you believe somebody else is going to hurt your family and you attack them preemptively then that could potentially be psychiatric defense of course, the onus is then to prove that that, that was your thought process. You, you, the court's not just going to take your word for it. You have to have a proper assessment. And so are people hiring, because I know they're hiring Kerry Danes, for example, like a, a prosecutor or a defence team would hire her. Is that happening with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. So as well as my NHS work, which I already do in courts, I spend the rest of my time, apart from making these YouTube videos, um, doing mm. expert witness work. So yeah, I, I get instructed, used more often by the defence, but occasionally by the Crown Prosecution Service. So they'll ask me, the most common thing I get asked if, is if somebody's fit to plead. So if their mental state right now is well enough that they can go through the court process, you know, understand the charges, give evidence, et cetera. And then less common, but arguably more interesting is their mental state at the time of the offence. So if they've got something like a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity or diminished responsibility, which downgrades murder to manslaughter. Do you ever feel a bit of like pressure from that team to sort of give them the answer they want? I think there is sometimes a pressure there. So some solicitors are more dodgy than others, I think it's fair to say. So sometimes I do feel a bit of a pressure or or what, what will happen is their client will tell them something and the solicitors will take it at face value. So for example, I've seen a case recently where uh, a young man was uh, accused of some sexual um, assaults. So he was I'm trying to get the details right. He was grooming. Yeah, that's right. So he, there was an undercover policeman who set up an internet account on a chat room and this man uh, basically groomed what he thought was a young boy, propositioned for sex, got arrested. And he told his solicitors that he has autism and therefore he has these traits and, and you know had a psychiatric defense. His solicitors took him at face value and kind of asked me to write a report that would find that. And I, I, I kind of see their angle because they want what's best for their client and they're not medically trained, so they wouldn't know he, whether he has or not, that's my job. But the way they structured the letter of instruction, their emails were, was all, almost um, as if it was a foregone conclusion, like this man has autism, therefore could you, mm. can you conclude blah, blah, blah. As opposed yeah. to this person might has autism or suspects he has autism. They're doing it on purpose, aren't they? They're putting pressure on you. Yeah, yeah. Not all solicitors like that, but yeah. Was but the guy autistic? Because, uh, no, no. So I think he had <laughs> some traits of autism. I think he was a bit sort of socially isolative. Uh, he was a bit withdrawn. 
he certainly had an interest of hanging out with children younger than him. So that kind of indicates that he doesn't uh, live by normal social norms. But I don't think he was autistic. He was very high functioning. He was able to communicate with me normally, good eye contact, understood the flow of conversation. So all these things are atypical in autism. It must be very frustrating sometimes for you because it's so hard to... I guess we want to think of there's that there's that book what is it the DSM is it yeah 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 and yeah and that's changing all the time right so what have you got what's happened that's the newest one oh you got it yeah I've not DSM. opened it yet but you know I tend to at some point do you have to keep buying the new one <laughs> yeah, yeah how much does it cost? Although actually you can, I do but then you can also uh, you could also Google it as well I just buy it because it just looks good in my shelf and also sure. uh, I use it most days so it's, it's worth me having it but Such yeah maybe 20 quid or something that's a racket yeah. my, my girlfriend's a, a lawyer she's always having to get like the new law book and they publish a new one like every six months it's like one word has changed and you have to get the new one it's just such a racket my problem is I buy too many books so at the time when I buy them when I'm on Amazon so I think like you know 20 years ago when you had to actually go to a bookstore I, when I, you know, for example, when I was a medical student, I'd have an idea that I need this book. And then yeah. over a couple of days, I'll talk myself out of it and I can't be asked. <laughs> I don't get the book. Whereas now I'm just like, I need this book. I'll buy it immediately. It'll come by the time it's come. I don't have the time or the interest. So I just accumulate all these books on criminology and psychiatry oh, and law. And I, I intended to read them at the time, but it's never. You're going to be a hoarder when you get older. <laughs> That's a mental illness, isn't it? Hoarding. Is that a mental illness? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not It's not a specific diagnosis, but it is, yeah, it certainly huh. can be. It can be related to a mental illness, yeah. Right. Well, so what I was going to say about the DSM is, so, I mean, paedophilia, a, a lot of people think that is a mental illness, right? So just like he's saying, oh, I know I have autism. I suppose he, say, he wants to say he's got autism so that he gets a lighter sentence or is sent to not a prison. Well, could he not argue, hey, I've, I've got paedophilia. That's a mental illness. Well, so paraphilias are, which in- incorporates paedophilias, are technically a mental illness, but that's not enough. So just having a mental illness in itself uh, does not give you a psychiatric defence. So if you think about it, many people who commit crimes might be depressed to a degree. It's very common. So people who, uh, the demographic details and the, con- and the factors that cause you to commit crime, I mentioned some of them before, you know, like poverty, homelessness, abuse, um, just coming from a, a, a damaged kind of background are the exact same things that drive people towards offending. So is it, those kind of mental illnesses are very common in the offender population. So having a mental illness isn't enough. You need a forensic psychiatrist to look at the evidence and say whether you're basically in control, whether you're criminally culpable. So the insanity plea, I, I won't go through it all because it, it'll be a bit dry, but the, the crux of the insanity plea, which is not guilty by reason of insanity, is is whether the person either knew what they were doing, um, whether, whether or not they knew the nature of the quality of their act, so they knew what they're doing, or they, whether they knew it was wrong. So if you can prove that it wasn't one of those two things, then they have a defence. And it's actually quite hard to do that. The, the bar is quite high. So to go back to your example, if you said that you had paedophilia, then all that is is a description of your sexual proclivities. It doesn't explain whether you knew what you were doing and whether you knew what you were doing was wrong. And I think the vast majority of people who are paedophiles would know that. There might be exceptions if, for example, they're schizophrenic and were suffering from delusions at that time, but that's a very small amount, you know, two, one, one, two percent of the cases I see. Do you deal with a lot of those, uh, a lot of child sex abuse uh, things? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I, I actually, so as well as criminal court cases, I also carry out civil court cases. So I, more often I see people, I assess uh, plaintiffs, so people who are the victims of sexual abuse, usually from decades ago, who now are seeking compensation. For many reasons, they uh, didn't disclose it at the time. They were too young, didn't really understand what was happening. Uh, and so they now seek compensation or they're suing the organisation that should have kept them safe, like social services or school, etc. But yeah, in terms of criminal cases, I wouldn't say it's very common, but probably one. I see one in every three, four months. I'll see a, a case of, of a childhood sexual offending. Yeah. But you're usually working on the side of the the person who the victim. Uh, so in the civil cases, I'm working in the side of the victim. In the uh, criminal cases, more often than not, I'm being instructed by their solicitor. But as I said before, I very rarely find a psychiatric defence. Uh, because the threshold is so high. The reason that I do more work for the defence rather than the prosecution is simple. It's because the prosecution only, the defence always puts their report in first. 
And if it's a reasonable report, so if it's been written by a decent psychiatrist who knows what they're talking about, then the majority of the time the prosecution won't challenge it. But if they think there's something that's dodgy in it, then they'll instruct their own psychiatrist. And then that's the fun bit of my job. You go to court and you, you battle it out and you get cross-examined by barristers and judges. Is it a bit like the sort of TV shows, American TV shows, when you, you know, you're up and you're being cross-examined by Tom Cruise and all that? <laughs> um, yeah, the, the barrister, the average barrister is not as good looking as Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> But it is it is a bit like when you're actually up there on the witness stand, it is quite fast paced and it can be quite intimidating. And yeah. the the uh, role of the barrister is to try and discredit you, right? So a barrister is never going to know more about the psychiatry uh, of an individual than I am. But they can kind of undermine me or try and get me to contradict myself or try and make inferences, false inferences yeah. from what I'm saying. And that's standard. That's not like, you know, somebody being hostile or being difficult. It's that's, their job, that's literally right? what, what their job, exactly. It's their job. But do you get pissed off though? Uh, when it first happened, I wouldn't say I was pissed off. When, I, when it first happened, I got um, quite flustered and I got quite mm. nervous. But then over time, you realise that, that you just have to be used to that. Uh, and all you have to do is just know your report. So you, I always write a report in advance. So I just have to know my report inside out, make sure I've read all the medical notes. Uh, and if you're, once I got past the hump of knowing of, of accepting that I knew the case well enough, then you just have to be ready to uh, to be challenged and ready to spot when somebody's intentionally misrepresenting your words. Uh, and, and I've seen very experienced forensic psychiatrists get like really flustered and really angry and argumentative. That's exactly not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to very calmly and coolly say, that's not what I meant, I meant this. That's so hard. I can so imagine, yeah, I would get flustered. And then every, when you're flustered, then it's like, oh no, I've lost them now. I shouldn't have got flustered and they'll get even more flustered. Well, the thing is, right, is, is nobody expects an argument, right? So if I, if I came on as a guest and I was just like intentionally twisting all your questions or all your words to me, then you, you would be flustered. But if you knew that I was going to do that from the beginning and you knew that you, you were going to speak to me for an hour and I would argue with you for that whole hour and you're prepared for it, then it's, it's not so bad. That's actually a reason that I tend not to challenge too much the guests that come on this show because they're not expecting and it's like you know i've asked them to come on and it's nice and then suddenly it's not a nice atmosphere is it um i don't know do you do you interview people do you ever have interview people on your on your uh, yeah i do i've not done it for a while actually but i have interviewed um some ex-patients so i interviewed not not my my own personal patients but other people who have been sectioned in psychiatric hospitals uh, I also have interviewed a policeman called John Clark who developed PTSD because of the experiences he had as a policeman and uh, he actually tried to commit suicide and then he got sectioned and um, somewhat unfortunately for him he was actually it was his own colleagues his own police colleagues that were called out to basically stop him hanging himself and then they had to take him to a psychiatric hospital so obviously that was a really emotionally charged uh, kind of scenario for him but yeah fascinating case. Do you ever have uh, that? Do you mean, I presume you have to look at some gruesome crime stuff, and all, you know, do you have to look at that stuff? And is that does that stay with you? Uh, I occasionally get sent. So I, I very rarely have uh, direct contact with victims in criminal cases. I do in civil cases, as I said before, but that's you know decades after after the sexual abuse. In criminal cases, I very rarely have contact with the victims, but I do sometimes get sent the the full case papers which might have pictures of the injury so i've certainly seen so you're looking through all these all these medical notes and witness statements and then suddenly you turn the page and there's like pages of pictures of like these people that have been stabbed in these massive gashes honestly it doesn't really affect me um i've always been a little bit i don't know what the word is callous psychopathic, yeah, psychopathic. <laughs> i don't get yeah psychopathic, <laughs> thank you um i've never been really bothered by things as much as yeah. the average person i don't really know why that is it's just we we my... need people like you though because i i get very um i forgot the word now what is it what's the word squeamish the word? squeamish yeah i get very squeamish um with anything really i can't even like eat foods because like, like meats i stopped eating meat not because of any sort of moralizing or anything like that it was just like a bit bit yuck and i couldn't do it and we need people like you and people who can be surgeons as well and do those kinds of things that the rest of us just don't want to go near so i'm grateful for that do you actually think you might be a bit on the sort of psychopathic scale um i think i've definitely got some traits I don't think I'm, I mean, I have empathy. I care about people. You know, I've got a wife and two kids. I'm nice to them, I think. Uh, so yeah. I don't lack empathy for other humans. But 
uh, I'm not easily thrown by things and things generally don't bother me. I'm not so, I don't know, just even recently we did a school drop off and one of the parents was complaining about, it was the first day of, the, of our kids' new school year and one of my parents was complaining because we didn't get a reception from the new teacher at the door and I couldn't care less. Like I don't, <laughs> things don't have to be perfect. They're going to know about that now. Well, hopefully hopefully they won't watch this. <laughs> <laughs> just nodding along, oh yeah, that's, that's interesting. Now you're coming on the podcast and bitching about them. Um, <laughs> what Do you think maybe you've got more um, cognitive empathy than emotional empathy? Is that what it might be? I mean, empathy is when you care about somebody who's gone through something horrible. And I do care. So I think I've got both. I think I'm just not... I, I'm able to separate what the perpetrator has done from their mental health needs. So we, we talked before about seeing uh, about assessing paedophiles. I've assessed a couple of people who have killed other people. I assessed uh, one that comes to mind is this farmer who um, who killed his wife and then tried to kill himself, shot himself in the face, uh, but obviously failed. Oh. Uh, and I just remember speaking to one of my colleagues very shortly afterwards because uh, I bumped into her on the train on the way back home. And she was re- she's a psychiatrist, not a forensic one though. And she was really freaked out by the whole situation. She'd read about his case in the paper. It was quite high profile at the time. Uh, and she just sort of asked me if I was bothered by it. Like if I was bothered by seeing him, his his entire jaw, jaw was blown away and he had like reconstructive surgery and he had like basically a hole in his mouth. Couldn't speak. He had to like uh, communicate oh with tablet. God. And um, honestly, it didn't bother me. Like I didn't, it's not like I don't care. I just, I had a job to do. I was there to do a psychiatric assessment his facial disfigurement, even what his pretty horrific crime didn't bother me because I know that there's a criminal justice system separate from me that's going to deal with that. My job is only to elicit his psychopathology, potentially make a diagnosis, that's it. And outside of that, when I'm in work mode, nothing else matters Mm. to me. I think some of that, some of those traits you're talking about are are useful in a journalist as well, because you have to meet some pretty uh, unsavory characters sometimes. And yeah. uh, it's something that winds me up, actually, in journalism. There's a lot of activism. And I think people sometimes get mixed up, activism and journalism. So they go for their causes and they try to put out their causes. And really, you know, I've met uh, pedophiles and I've met like these yeah. fervent pro-lifers who scream at people getting abortions and stuff. And I just, yeah, I sort of switch off as well in the same way. And if, in fact, I find it quite exciting to be in a room with somebody who's so brazenly and openly uh, unsavory, you know, so, it could be quite fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've I've seen I've I've seen the clips of you talking to um, the paedophile. He was foreign, wasn't he? A German oh, fella. German, that's right. Um, and I, I imagine it was similar to the way that I was thinking. Like you might hate him as a person, and you might hate what he's done. But your your the purpose of you being there at that moment isn't to judge him sitting in front of you. Your purpose is to yeah. uh, try and extract some information and see his way of thinking. That doesn't mean that you agree with any of it. You know, I, I don't. I, I think there's something very different with judging somebody and just assessing them or analysing them. It's very different. But there's certainly been t- cases in the media where solicitors or barristers who have defended somebody that's done something horrific have been like, had eggs eggs thrown in them out of them at a courtroom or, you know, comments shouted like, how can you defend the guy? It's the same kind of thing. You're not defending them because you you believe in what they did or you like them as a person. You're just trying to grease the wheels of justice to make sure that they get a fair trial. And if you believe in the court system, which is not infallible, but if you believe that generally speaking, it fights, it makes the right decisions, then you don't have to be on the side of everyone's opinion. You just have to be part of a process to allow the process to finish. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> what is the link between mental illness and violence? Tell me a bit about uh, those sort of factors in, in violence. Sure. So uh, the first thing I I should say is that the vast majority of people that have a mental illness are not violent. Uh, It's far more likely to be a victim of crime if you've you've got a mental illness than a perpetrator. It's just the people that I see happen to be the ones that are in that very small category because I work as a forensic psychiatrist. So I think I should make that clear because I don't want to be adding to the stigma of mental illness. Uh, But in answer to your question, I think it is complicated. I think there's direct links. So, for example, if somebody is suffering from a psychosis and if they're hearing voices, the voices of the patients that I see often tell them to attack other people Um, or they could be suffering from delusions. So uh, another case, one of my very first times I gave evidence was at the Old Bailey and it was a tragic case. There was um, a really young 18 year old girl, completely unblemished. So she'd never um, been a delinquent, never got into trouble, never took alcohol or drugs, really studious. She became completely psychotic out of the blue and suffocated and killed her two-year-old uh, nephew while she was babysitting. What? Can that just happen yeah. to anyone? 
Well, this is the thing. So in her particular case, it, there were no factors, no markers, no oh. mental, uh, no family history of, of schizophrenia, etc. So for her, it, it appears to have come out of nowhere, but that's really, really rare. So for the vast majority of people that I see, they have all these uh, risk factors that I was talking about before. Hmm. Um, so she believed that she was ridding him of demons and she believed that she could reincarnate him immediately afterwards. So oh, she, it wasn't yeah. like a... Um, I think I've read about that. An intentional... Possibly, possibly. I don't, you don't know if I read about it, do you? Because you, you haven't <laughs> been watching what I read. But was that in the papers and stuff? Or maybe I read about it through yeah. you? Or, it hmm. were, uh, so I've made an episode about it. I, I, as in all, all my um, episodes or things that I write, I always keep my patients anonymous. So I wouldn't have used her name, but it was it was quite high profile at the time. So you might have read about it. Uh, but yeah, so there's that, that's the direct link. So when you have people that have these uh, symptoms that make them go on and offend. So that's rare, but it does happen. So that's one obvious connection. The other connection is something that we've already talked about. So that's the demographic factors that lead to both, you know, poverty, being the victim of abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think there's other more subtle factors. So people who have mental illnesses can be vulnerable to be exploited. So I've seen at least three or four cases in my career where people who've either got a learning disability or like a chronic schizophrenia who are quite marginalized and isolated have been befriended by these drug dealing gangs and these drug dealing gangs you know they they show them a bit of a bit of camaraderie smoke a bit of weed with them you know spend some time with them pretend that they're part of the gang and then sort of use them on county lines or use them to go out and do all the all the risky groundwork and then give them you know they take all the money so i think that's another link is that and it's probably something that's not appreciated very much is that people are um, are vulnerable because if you've got a, a severe mental illness and you're in and out of hospital for most of your adult life, then the chances of you having long-term gainful employment or even relationships, sometimes even family support, is quite low. So if you're marginalised and isolated, you're you're basically um, easy easy pickings for these kind of uh, gangs. Are most um, offenders? I was just when I'm imagining these people in my head, they're always men. Do you, do you come across women as well who have murdered and killed and maimed? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I. Uh, most people that commit violence overwhelmingly are, are men. And there's something like, I think, eight times the number of men than there are women in prison at the moment. So yeah, the vast majority are men. But I, I worked in a female prison for a couple of years as a regular psychiatrist. Uh, and some of my medical legal cases, definitely the minority, maybe roughly one in five, I'd say, are on women. Um, so that example I gave you before, that 18-year-old girl was one of my uh, major cases. So yeah, it's, it's rarer, but women do commit violence as well. And so what do you do then with these people? They've got these, a mental disorder, they've committed a crime. Um, I mean, how do you rehabilitate them? So there's, there's different roles or incarnations of forensic psychiatrists. So <clears throat> what I've been talking about mostly so far is when I was an expert witness. So I, that would be giving the evidence in court about whether they need to go to hospital or prison. Once, they, once that decision has been made, then they're transferred under criminal uh, acts of the uh, criminal sections of the mental health act and that's when they get into hospital and then another forensic psychiatrist will look after their care so the rehabilitation is as i said before it's usually quite lengthy and it's quite detailed usually at least a few years so the first thing you do is you medicate their illness so if they've got something like schizophrenia then you give them antipsychotics and it's a degree of trial and error because most drugs take about four to six weeks before they work Depending on the severity of the mental illness, they might need to, you might need to experiment or trial, I think trials are better words, different types of medications and different doses to see which ones work. Sometimes if they don't work, you might need uh, combinations. And if the patient doesn't have insight, which is very common, they might refuse the medications. So then you might have to physically restrain them. Uh, I say you, I mean nurses. So the, the psychiatrist will write the prescription, but it's the nurses that have to take the brunt of the, of the hard work. Um, so they might have to physically restrain them and, and inject them with antipsychotics, usually once every two weeks or once every month, uh, which, as you can imagine, can be quite a struggle with with uh, aggressive, violent, psychotic patients. Uh, so that's the first thing. You have to medicate their mental illness. You can't really do much else until that's happened. Why does it take four to six weeks to work? Because we're used to drugs, I guess, for lay people. It's like you take an ibuprofen and it works in about 10 minutes. So is there like a lay person answer to that question or is it just too complex? 
There is a layperson answer. So first of all, the sedative effects might work straight away. So somebody will get a bit sedated within half an hour. But the actual antipsychotic effects take longer. It's all to do with dopamine receptors. So these drugs block dopamine receptors, which takes a long time for that to happen. And it takes a long time. You have to, it has to be in your bloodstream for a long period of time for enough receptors to get blocked that actually reverses the disease. So, so dopamine, from my understanding, is what sort of is, brings you happiness? Like a bit like serotonin? I don't know. Yeah, what is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, so it, they act to different parts of the brain they act in different parts of the brain so dopamine serotonin is more associated with uh, happiness so when you take ecstasy for example that's your serotonin levels massively um, increase same with cocaine and when you take antidepressants that's the type of that's the chemical that gets that's um it's reuptake gets blocked so the chemical levels increase over time so dopamine also is is to do with reward and happiness to a degree but it's also to do with movement and understanding your environment so if you've got maladaptive dopamine system that's when you have hallucinations and delusions wow that's fascinating so you, yeah you can see a sort of chemical reason why somebody is like and i guess a psychosis is somebody really going off and just believing totally out there stuff yeah so psychosis is, is like a step out of reality yeah it's hard to imagine having that i suppose it's quite rare is it uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's rare. Schizophrenia is is probably the most common form of psychosis. So that's a chronic psychosis where you have periods of, of relapsing and remitting about 1% of the population. In prison, much, much higher. I'd say maybe somewhere between 5 to 10% from my experience. Okay, God. It's, yeah, I can't get my head around it because I can't imagine. I suppose the closest thing I can imagine to it is being very, very drunk and just not uh, not having your wits about you. Is, is that... Is that the closest? Well, thing? I I don't know whether you've ever taken any hallucinogenics, but I suppose that would be another another way oh. where uh, a non psychotic person would have those kind Once. of experiences. It's the most miserable night of my life. I'll never do it again. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna oh. plead. I'm gonna plead the fifth on that because I'm a doctor. So. <laughs> yeah, you can't say that stuff. I can say what I want. I don't even have a proper job. What is, what is this? I can say I took loads of drugs. No, it's like I did that in columbia on a on a beach me and my friend we thought we're going to do this we'll do it once and try this weird type of it was lsd mixed with something i don't even know what it was uh yeah. and it was a it was a private beach like a hidden beach away from everyone else and on an island and we thought we'll just stay the night it's so beautiful and obviously that was the stupidest thing we could have done because we had what i suppose is yeah that's the closest thing to psychosis uh just for hours and hours on our own hidden in a forest it was absolutely horrible so so what were you what were you experiencing um a long time of 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 saying, oh, I don't think it's worked. You know, I was saying, oh, this this hasn't worked. You know, and my mate was going, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's worked. And like, I suddenly realised we were like thirty meters out in the sea with all our clothes on, and a dog was there. It was a real dog. We weren't imagining it. Uh, and it, only looking back, it was like, you know, obviously it had been working at this point. Why were we in our clothes in the sea? So there was a lot of that. Uh, and were you actually yeah, hallucinating? Sort of- were you were you seeing things that? For a long time, I wasn't. And I think part of it was I was so scared. I'm, I'm a very nervy person, which is why this was so stupid. I'm, I'm not intrepid yeah. in any way, as, as you, though you should be as a journalist, but I'm not. Um, and so I was so tight and like, I didn't want to let anything happen because I was so scared of it. And eventually I did reach a point about five hours in, at like must have been four or five in the morning, where I looked up at the sky and the clouds uh, seemed to be forming uh, Messi and Ronaldo, the footballers from, from, the, from the PlayStation cover. And I was seeing them. And then from that moment, whenever I shut my eyes, yeah, just loads of like weird Mickey Mouse cartoons and things were kicking off. And if I were able to enjoy that and not be so yeah. panic stricken, I think that would have been a really pleasurable experience. But it was it was hellish because of the fear. I think you, when you're taking hallucinogenics, you kind of absorb the environment and the situation that you're in. So if you if it's cold or it's dark or you're uncomfortable or you're not fully comfortable with your um, surroundings, you're not sure what's you know beyond, then absolutely that's going to seep in. But if you're in a warm, comfortable place with friends, then I think it, I think it's different. It was really it was really stupid of me and my friend Ricky. Ricky, this was about ten years ago, so I, I don't think he'll be listening. But okay, so let's go. Let's go back. So we've got we we know about dopamine and psychosis. Uh, but what were you what were you saying before? So the first thing you do is you treat the psychosis uh, with medication. The next thing is you have the psychotherapy. So this is when the team psychologist uh, is at, is at their most helpful. They come in and they see they see the needs of the patient. So it's different for individuals. It could be anger management, domestic violence, 
sexual offending. Uh, it could be just just recognizing their symptoms. So somebody who's, for example, got got mania, they become really excited, really happy, really speeded up. But because they're enjoying the experience at the time, they don't either they don't recognize it or they don't want it to stop. So part of that particular person's rehabilitation would be knowing where your limits are, knowing when you're becoming unwell. So that rehabilitation is is long term. It's you know six months minimum, sometimes a year, sometimes longer. Uh, and then when all of those things are stable, we in our forensic units we have like an occupational therapist so if you discharge somebody and release them back into an environment where they have no job no way of making money antisocial peers drugs and alcohol around them then it follows that it's very likely they will at some point reoffend and relapse so we do our best to try and set them up for the future so our occupational therapists will either give them education college courses or a vocation so in some hospitals they can actually work in the hospital like as a barber or the on-site cafe or voluntary work nearby so we you know we do our best to try and, and set them up for the best chance of succeeding then after all of those things are done then if the patient's been stable on the wards not been breaching boundaries not been trying to sneak in drugs not been fighting with staff members or other patients then they might be ready for leave so then we have leave initially unescorted, if that goes well. Uh, sorry, initially escorted, if that goes well, unescorted. And if they come back on time, they don't breach boundaries, they're not coming back drunk, uh, they're not doing things they shouldn't be doing outside uh, on leave, then gradually, when that's been uh, stable for a long period of time, then at that point, they're ready for release. So it's really a detailed, long process. It's an interesting what you say about sort of making them feel part of society, I suppose. Um, and does that def- that actually statistically prevents uh, re- uh, re-offending? Yeah, absolutely. So if, you've, if you go out into an environment where you've got a family, a safe kind of hostel and a job or at least a vocation and potential jobs lined up, then your chances of re-offending um, are much less, yeah. It reminds me of like when I've been looking into the paedophilia stuff. I spent a long time looking at these these guys, um, and the doctors there were saying that one of the biggest risk factors in whether they might offend or reoffend is stigmatization, and that if you make them feel part of society again, and that you know we're with you, we support you, then they're much less likely to offend. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a logical argument, but a lot of people will have an emotional argument against that, where they don't care about a paedophile being rehabilitated they just want them to be punished and locked away i know but then you got it's so frustrating isn't it because i I always say this to people like it doesn't that's fine you don't have to care about the paedophile right that's fine let's forget him but the the child abuse will will be curbed if we treat these people at least yeah i agree and i think everyone deserves a second chance i mean there might be some exceptions if they're you know horrific offenders but generally speaking i think uh, I mean, I, I kind of feel obliged to to think this, but I also separately do think this that um, as a doctor, that we should set people up for at least a chance uh, a redemption. And especially if there's a mental illness that's driving it, then that's not necessarily they might not necessarily have had criminal culpability, um, or there might have been mitigating factors which we can control. So if we can give them the right medication, if we can keep them off alcohol and drugs, then um, just completely taking morality out of it, just in terms of clinical risk factors, we can help decrease their chances of reoffending. the problem is i suppose on an emotion on an emotional and a very real level in the very few occasions when these people are sort of let out by doctors and clinicians and then they go on to do something horrific it's just it ruins lives um has that happened in your experience and under your care Uh, it's not happened under my care it's not happened under my care and i think possibly uh as well as my amazing clinical acumen, it's probably because I've only been uh, only been working in a hospital for about two years as a consultant. So before then, I was a registrar, so I didn't um, I didn't make the final decisions. Since becoming a consultant, which is 2014, I've only worked in a hospital for two years. The rest of the time has been in prison and in courts. So I'm not the one that's you know the it's not my decision when somebody gets released from prison, obviously. Um, but I've known it happened to other people. Um, from recording YouTube videos, there's this one case of Dr. Canaleri, I think is her name. She's French, so I'm probably not pronouncing that right. But um, something like 2014, I believe it was, she actually got sued uh, by the French courts because one of her patients went on to kill somebody else. And it caused a massive uproar at the time because her psychiatrist peers kind of had her back and said to the courts, well, if you're going to start, you know, uh, literally charging us uh, in criminal cases because of our patients, then we're going to have to practice really defensive, defensively. And if, if you want us to do that, then you're never going to get us to discharge people and you're not going to have a system where people can be re- rehabilitated.
And that does happen with some some in some places. I mean, that's like uh, that Louis Theroux documentary in. Um, Oh, I can't remember what the place was called. It was a, it was a hospital in the US. People are just kept yeah. there for life with mental illnesses. Mostly, it's the it's again it's paedophilia, but it's I think other sexual offenders are there, just locked up for life. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Don't know what to do with them. I um, suppose it's not just paedophiles, yeah. but in general, when you're talking about patients that commit violence, it's the, you, psychiatrists can't predict the future, right? We're not psychics. All we can do is use the information that's there in front of us. So if somebody has committed quite a serious violent offence and they go through our rehabilitation process and they're in, they're taking their medication and they're engaging and they're not getting into fights and they're sticking with the ward rules and they go on leave and they come back in time and they're not taking drugs or alcohol while they're on leave and we know that through urine tests, etc. Through all those things for years, then there's no justification in keeping them in longer because you're not doing anything else. You've already done all of the rehabilitation. There's nothing more you can do for them apart from test them and leave more, but there's no point. If they can do it for two years, then they can do it for three years. Uh, and a point I'm trying to make is that there's going to be, statistically, there's going to be a, a proportion of those people that will eventually reoffend, but we can't predict which ones those are going to be. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. There's so much pressure on you guys as well. Do you, do you like, have um, forensic psychiatrist friends and do you sort of watch all the movies, like that one with Richard Gere and Edward Norton? Do you know which one that one is? No. no. What's that movie? I'm just typing it in now because I, I watched it and it was... It was. It was. It reminds me of a lot of what you're saying. Primal fear. You should see. Oh, that. primal fear. Yeah. No, I have seen that. I have seen that. It, I mm. didn't. I didn't. Re- I don't remember. I've got a terrible memory in general, but I don't remember there being a forensic psychiatrist. In it. Was that the guy that? Does he follow them around on a boat, or is that something else? Uh, that might be something else. I don't know about forensic psychiatry. Actually, I was just thinking about because my. You know what? Because my next question was. That's what I'm thinking in my head. Is about how you spot if someone's faking it. And spoiler alert: the end of Primal Fear. Edward Norton's character was. Um, faking it faking being mentally ill uh how do you spot if someone is faking it so it's actually much easier than you might think um, the reason being is because most mental illnesses come on gradually over time so if somebody sitting in front of me tells me that they're you know hearing voices or they're suffering from delusions i will have already looked through their medical notes so I'm looking at the GP notes, any previous contact with psychiatrists. I might speak to family members or work colleagues or have um, some of their work records. So somebody has been functioning at a normal level. If they've been going out and socializing, they're doing their job normally. And then suddenly within the space of a couple of days, appar- apparently has become psychotic. It's not impossible, but it's very, very unlikely. So I'm really suspicious. Mm. The woman with the babies. Oh, that killed her, her nephew. Her nephew. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he, she... That, I mean, so that that came out of nowhere, as in there were no um, there were no risk factors, but she still deteriorated over a space of time. So she wasn't violent, but she had what I would call a prodrome. So she had some very bizarre behaviour for about six weeks beforehand. So she was, um, for example, she was telling her family off for watching smut on TV, but it wasn't smut; it was just what they usually watched. Oh, that's so scary! The word smut there, I just you can see the horror film, can't you? You stop watching this smut. And then later goes, and oh my God, that's scary. Sorry, go on. I think you should write that horror film. Um, yeah. And she would, she started listening to this like instrumental music and start chanting. So none of it was violent, but it was definitely a shift from her normal self. So I don't think anybody could have predicted that she would have done what she did, just to be clear. But there was something that was, that was off about her. So when I'm assessing patients in front of me, I'm looking for that. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I... I suppose we're a little bit like detectives. So I look for subtle, uh, I kind of observe them subtly. So for example, if they're telling me that they're really scared and they're on the brink of suicide when they're sat in the room with me in court or in prison, but then I see them sort of laughing and joking with their friends when they're coming away from the visits hall, then I know there's a, there's a disparity there. Uh, and I try and get objective evidence. So if they're already in, reminded in prison, I will speak to the prison officers. And if they say this person's like been in their cell the entire time, they're not speaking to anybody, they're not taking food, then, you know, I could think that possibly there's, they're psychotic. But if they say he's absolutely normal, he's, you know, talking, we're having some banter about football this morning, and that's different to what I'm seeing in front of me, then, you know, my bullshit radar is on, on high alert. And finally, the other thing I would say is that another reason it's quite easy to spot is because people who are genuinely mentally unwell, broadly speaking, it's quite hard to elicit those symptoms. So if, for example, you had all these uh, paranoid beliefs about strangers wanting to hurt you or about cameras watching you and you'd only met me for the first time, some smarmy guy in a suit, you wouldn't tell me straight away. I'd have to really sort of tease and try and get it off you. Whereas people that I see who try and fake mental illness or exaggerate it, 
immediately when I'm in the room, they say, I'm hearing voices, doctor, or, you know, can you see that doctor? Or why is that person staring at me? They, they, it's too, they're, they're too dramatic. They kind of, they try too hard to convince me, I think. So it's actually quite easy. Why do they want to fake it? Because they'll, they'll just go to a, what's the, what's the proper word for a mental home? Uh, a medium secure unit, generally, if they've committed a serious offence or a secure unit, yeah. Is that much better? Uh, that is an interesting question. So I would say if you're, if you're antisocial and you're criminogenic, so you've got a criminal lifestyle, then from my experience, prison's better, a better environment for you because you're with people who you can be pally with, you might be in the same gang with, you're with people that are similar to you. Uh, if you're in a, if you're, if you've faked it and you've come into a psychiatric hospital, you're going to be potentially dosed up with a lot of medication. You're going to be around very ill, very psychotic people. You might struggle to have conversations with some of them. So on the rare occasion that does happen, they want to get the fuck out of there as soon as possible and <laughs> back to prison. Um, oh, yeah. It's no good then, did the whole faking illness thing. Man, who was the woman who was facing fraud charges who you think uh, faked a mental illness? So this was an interesting case. Uh, we'll call her, I won't use her real name, but we'll call her Miss Boyko. I'm, I'm uh, in the process of writing a book, so that's what she's called in the book. Oh, cool. Uh, so she was an, a, a Ukrainian ex-model and she and her brother, uh, she and her cousin and a man who she had an affair with, all three of them were implicated in these um, carbon credit type frauds. So I'm not entirely sure how the actual fraud works, but she basically ripped off lots of people with for hundreds of thousands of pounds, and she was integral. She didn't do she didn't do any of the face-to-face uh, -face contact with the victims, but she would wire the money between accounts, and she set up fake accounts and set up fake IDs. This, this isn't that one from the podcast. There was a BBC podcast I think last year with a woman who was from somewhere like Ukraine, as in Eastern Europe, I think, who was yeah. it was called One Coin or something. It's not that, is it? You couldn't I say if it was. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But, <laughs> okay. um, I honestly don't know. But um, so she, so the three of them went on trial and then tragically her child developed cancer and got really, really unwell. So they continued the trial with the other two co-defendants who were found guilty. And then about a year later, her, her child got better, but her, um, she needed to be retried. And I was convinced that she was faking being too upset to participate in the trial. So she said that she was she was just so broken by the illness that her child went to that she was too upset. So she ignored letters from her solicitors. She wouldn't take their phone calls. Um, and she even got her GP. She even saw a, a private psychiatrist. So she was she was actually quite rich because she was married, very recently divorced to a CEO of a company. So she was you know a millionaire living in in, um, in Kensington. And she'd convinced, I think, a private psychiatrist to write a bit of a dodgy letter saying that she had all these diagnoses. And then she was seen by another forensic psychiatrist. And in my opinion, and it's just my opinion, she tricked this man into thinking that she was just far too unwell, far too distressed, far too dis depressed to actually go through the process. So she was crying in floods of tears when she saw him. And fast forward a few months, she saw me. She's very similar in her presentation, but I just wasn't buying it. Um, and I tried to kind of use slightly underhand tactics. So I noticed that she, when she started, well, she, first of all, she, would, she was able to tell me some elements of her history quite well. So she was able to tell me about uh, her childhood, um, her, her background, you know, family history, et cetera, et cetera. And then when we talked about the crime, then she got really, really upset, like floods of tears. But then when I wouldn't let it go, when I kind of politely explained, let her cry, for 10 minutes, gave her some tissues and then said, right, so we have to talk about this. Her, she tried it a couple of times and I think she realised that I wasn't just going to let it go. So she became, her, her countenance changed very quickly. She became very passive aggressive, very irritable. And she told me that she couldn't remember very basic bits of information. So she couldn't remember if any family members had been uh, involved in this, in these allegations. I wasn't even asking her about her innocence or guilt. I was just asking about the court, the court case. Couldn't remember that her cousin was involved. Couldn't remember the name of the third co-defendant who she'd had an affair with. It just didn't add up. I thought it was bullshit. Um, so I basically politely explained in my court report that I couldn't do a full proper fitness to plead assessment because she wasn't cooperating. But I don't think there's any, it doesn't add up to me. There's no psychiatric reason, in my opinion, that she's not fit to plead. But despite everything I said, the judge still went with the other expert and uh, dropped the case. And I, I think, I can't know for definite, but I think that the judge felt that he'd already got the two main culprits and you had this, you know, quite pretty, attractive, crying woman who had a kid with cancer. So I think the judge was at least partially implicit in, in uh, using mental illness as a smokescreen, I think. 
I suppose it's quite sad if your kid's got cancer, isn't it? I mean, she must have been sad. Unless she was a psychopath, maybe she didn't. I don't know. Well, so I, I specifically wrote this in my report. Um, like, I think I even put it in bold. I said there might be humanitarian reasons for for the trial uh, to be stayed or to be stopped, but there's no psychiatric reason she's not fit to plead. So I think it's reasonable for the judge to say, we don't need to try this because it's not in the public interest. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. What I had a problem with is them using mental illness as a smokescreen of saying she's not fit to plead. That's different. That's a really interesting difference. And I can see why that's important uh, to you. That's that's your that's your work. Which is frustrating because why why instruct me to give an opinion if you're not going to listen to my opinion? <laughs> uh, I guess if you'd both given the same, then he'd, he'd have felt a little bit bolder, the judge. Yeah, yeah. That's I right. don't know. What about what is life like inside the padded cell, you know, <clears throat> and, and, and with the most violent and agitated patients so you're talking about a seclusion room so i think there's um <clears throat> that's kind of the modern day version of the um, antiquated idea of a padded cell so within medium secure units there are and some low secure units and definitely all high secure units there are these seclusion rooms on the side of wards and they are for patients who are just so agitated at that time that they're, they're a danger to be out on the ward so what happens is that they're kept in this room. It's it's very minimalistic. There's literally just one uh, mattress in the corner and one sheet that's made out of this special vinyl so it can't be ripped and can't be used to make, make ligatures. There's no furniture at all. And there's like a little ensuite bathroom, but all the equipment is kind of non-breakable. So it's all like steel, like so there's a steel mirror. So it's nothing that can be you know, smashed or used as a weapon. And they're basically kept in there until they can calm down um usually i'd say it's about one or two days would be normal exceptionally it might be for several days or it might even be for weeks if if you just can't contain their their level of danger and then what happens is you get nurses that do their observations it's different at different hospitals but broadly speaking about once every four hours so they go in take their blood pressure off the patient um, give them medication and then you have to have doctor's reviews every once in a while as well so the doctor's there to make sure there's no uh, serious medical issue, number one, and also to decide when seclusion kind of terminates, when the patient's safe to come out. And to be fair, the majority of the times it goes relatively well. You know, people are obviously agitated, otherwise they wouldn't be in there, but they, most of the time they listen and they will take the medication. Uh, there's been two or three incidents in my career which are quite hair-raising where they've just been ready for a fight right from the beginning. So they 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 just attack the, the staff as soon as they come into the room. Yeah, how do you go in? Uh, so it's actually really, really well planned and orchestrated. So <clears throat> first of all, you, you get the patient to sit right back. If, if the patient seems relatively calm, then you just ask them to sit down in the corner. And that's it. If, the, if it looks like they might be agitated and might want to attack you, you won't open the door until they're kind of sat uh, with their hands behind their back in the, in the corner of the room. Um, so that's the first thing you do. And also every nurse has a job to do and has a limb to hold if the patient kicks off. So they kind of walk in. It's a bit like a choreographed kind of wow. synchronized swimming. So they walk in yeah. so, that, so that there's a little horseshoe around the patient and they ask the patient politely, you know, please don't move until we ask you to. And if you do move, then you might be restrained. And so if the patient looks like they're going to get up, then every nurse has a particular limb they're going for. If it's a particularly strong patient, there might be even two nurses for each of the legs, one for the arms. Um, yeah, so it's a, they're kind of trained in control and restraint. Are you sort of popping in there with them at that point? So the weird thing is, is that we have that training, I think, because for insurance reasons, we have to be able to, the, the hospital has to cover their ass. So uh, all doctors, every member of staff has the training, but the doctors never restrain. It's only over the nurses. Uh, I think nurses get have a hard job, actually. They, they do the, the worst jobs and get paid the least as well. Yeah, that is tough. And you're like, you're there like the head of a clan, like a head of a gang, like go on, get him and get him, boys. <laughs> Man, that is scary. Um, to be people still use straight jackets no no i th i believe there is one person who i've never seen myself but I, it might just be a rumor but i've heard that there's one person in broadmoor hospital who is uh, physically restrained with like belts and chains um but that's very very exceptionally rare so no we don't use straight jackets no we use chemical we use um chemicals more than or injections and medications okay yes of course uh last question um, are you are you happy doing this? Are you happy in your life? Does it make you happy helping people? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I so I, I mostly now so I don't work in a hospital anymore. I mostly now do expert witness work. The crooks of my cases I find absolutely fascinating. So when I'm giving my my opinion, that's the bit I love writing and love saying yeah. in court on the witness stand. To get there can be quite mundane. So sometimes I'll be sent case papers and there could be 
10 or 20 pages, which is fine for me. Happy to do that, go through them. Sometimes it can be like 400 pages. Mm. That's a pain in the ass. That's like a day of just reading through medical notes and only maybe 5% of it's relevant. So I'm happy most of the time, but some once in a while, I just, I have long, um, slow days. Yeah, man. I wouldn't want to read those ugh, 400 pages and all that. And then, and then, because the thing is, I do sometimes find, oh, I've read a few pages and I haven't even taken it in. And for me, that's okay. But for you, you can't, you can't miss that stuff. Well, I, I dictate as I read through it. So I have, oh. I have systems to not get too bored or fall asleep. And I have <laughs> loads of coffee as well. So that helps. That was extremely enlightening. Thank you so much, Dr. Shoham Das, for coming on the show. I'd love to have you back sometime. It was fascinating to get a real insight into a part of life that is hidden to most of us. We just sort of walk around and eat chocolate or whatever. And meanwhile, there are people being physically restrained because of their psychosis in psychiatric wards. So it's always good to be reminded of that darker side of life. Remember to check out Shaham's YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. A link is in the show notes where you'll also find links to his social media. Find the bonus interview on patreon.com slash Gold or on Apple subscriptions. I've not got that much to say right now as there weren't any new reviews or patrons this week. That's okay. There are always peaks and troughs and I've still been getting such lovely messages from so many of you. So please do keep getting in touch. Uh, reviewing and spreading the word. If you're interested, I've been a guest on a few podcasts recently myself, so you can find me being interviewed about all sorts of things from exorcism to my work on pedophilia to uh, being a documentary person. Um, You'll find that on Chris Williamson's Modern Wisdom, Sean Atwood's YouTube channel, the Cruel Space podcast, and Eric Hunley's YouTube channel. You can find links to those videos on my youtube channel as well so please do subscribe there as that is growing a little slower than this audio version uh just search on the edge with andrew gold on youtube and you'll find it you get to see what we all look like uh next up is dr Catherine page harden talking about her book the genetics lottery some fascinating stuff about dna and genes and all that stuff then it'll be astronomer colin stewart talking about the planets and space and time in a very easy to understand and accessible way Even I got to grips with most of what he was saying, and I'm pretty amazed by what I learned. So that's coming up. That's everything for this episode, so I'll see you next week. 